Hi, this is uh, Thomas Rungan, and you are listening to the First Team Podcast. With your host, John Frashante. Hello, Cosmos Country. I have the honor to talk to Thomas Rangan, and we spoke about different issues from uh, his playing career. He shared some stories that he had from back in the day, and just a great conversation with a wonderful, wonderful soccer mind, which is Thomas Rangan. So stay tuned for the interview. I'm joined by former NASL player and coach and current MLS pundit, Thomas Rangan. How are you today? I'm I'm great. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. So let's talk about your transition from Ajax to the Aztecs in the NASL. Well, it was a great opportunity as, as a young player to join a league that was uh, pretty stable at that time, healthy, with some incredible talent. I mean, we had the Messi's and Ronaldo's in this league. The, you know, George Best, Johan Cruyff, Franz Beckenbauer. Uh, Ricardo Villa, Nene Kubias. We, we clearly had the best players in the world in a league that was uh, ambitious, um, a league that uh, draw a lot of people in, in cities that we, we see now as well, back in the United States, uh, of the rebirth of MLS and, and also the, uh, the new NESL. And for me as a young player, um, the transition was fairly smooth. Uh, I played for Ajax in, in their youth system and, and in the reserve team. I was very fortunate. I was coached by the great uh, Rinus Mikkels that uh, asked me if I wanted to join uh, the NESL. I had, in the previous year, in 1978, when I played for the Dutch Olympic team, we took a tour through the United States. We played in San Diego, L.A., uh, St. Louis, D.C., and New York. And I just fell in love with this country, and I wanted to go back, um, even backpacking, which I almost did prior to... Uh, the phone call I received from uh, the coach of the LA Aztecs at that time and owned by Alan Rothenberg, uh, you know, the, the old president of the uh, uh, United States Soccer Federation and clearly the spearhead of the World Cup in 1994 in this country. And all of a sudden I'm surrounded by these incredible players as teammates, these these players and opposing teams, uh, the travels. I was able to see the United States, the uh, birth, so to speak, of artificial turf, uh, different climate changes, uh, time zones. It was a very, very demanding league from a physical standpoint and an emotional standpoint, but I had a lot of fun as a young player, and and, and I'll back at this as one of the highlights of of my career, uh, being part of uh, something that was very special. At times, did you think it was a surreal moment playing next to these big stars? Yes, yes, it was. You go from one game to the other, and I played as a <coughs> sorry, 
<clears throat> defensive okay. midfielder, Holland midfielder. I end up marking George Best. I end up marking Beckenbauer and set pieces. I end up marking Trevor Francis. You know, players I, I, I watched, obviously, on the highest level in World Cups or in their respective countries. And for me as a young player, it was just, just incredible. I was part of the best goal ever in the words of George Best that he scored. Um, when we played San Jose, he took seven players on, including myself, and scored. And in his book, he tells about when somebody asks him, what's the best goal you scored? And people think he's going to say something about Man United or playing in the European Championship or representing his country. And I said that goal in, I think it was 81, um, was the goal of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was special. And I got nutmeg by George Best. I'm very proud of that. And uh, the previous year, I played with Jan Cruyff. He also um, became the Golden Boot winner and also was chosen the goal of the year against Seattle. And that was also an incredible run from midfield, similar to George, taking four or five players on and eventually scoring. So... I was just pinching myself each and every time. I was pinching myself sitting in a limo next to uh, Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones. Uh, I pinched myself uh, when I walked behind Pele into Studio 54. Uh, I pinched myself to be hanging out with Hollywood stars, um, in particular, obviously, Dutch uh, Dutch stars that uh, Rutger Howard that played roles in you know Hollywood movies that would come to our games and we would rip be reciprocal and go there to their party. So it was a, it was a little bit of a fun uh, uh, environment, which I really enjoyed. You talk about how the league was very demanding. Do, do you think stars coming to the NASL, coming to MLS, they, they're experiencing that every single day? Yeah, that was tough for them because let's face it. Um, yes. Ajax went to four European championships, uh, the Dutch national team was in two World Cups in 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 um, uh, seventy four and, and seventy eight, um, and, and Cruyff was part of all of that. But he kept saying outside of the Argentina trip that travel in Europe within Holland, you basically go by bus. It's two hours is a, is a long trip. Uh, you fly to Barcelona in a, in an hour and a half less. Uh, so coming here and, and flying from LA to New York to Toronto, Vancouver, Edmonton. He said, that's really what killed me. You know, it's not the games themselves, but the travel just took so much out of me. Uh, being 65, 70 degrees in, in Los Angeles, uh, being at minus 10 in Edmonton, uh, playing on turf as well, which is which was hard for the European players, the foreign players. So they were somewhat ill-prepared for that, but still were able to showcase their talents, uh, but, but found the league... Uh, very demanding, not necessarily from a playing standpoint, but from uh, all the things that come uh, come with it, including media pressure and, and, as I said again, some of the things that I mentioned. So it was a it was not an easy league to play, and some foreigners thought when they would come come over here, um, similar to what Steven Gerrard said. Uh, I was not mm-hmm. uh, prepared for all the travel and the different, as I said again, the, the different things that. Um, North America brings to a game that you initially don't think about. When you talk about the old NASL, do you see uh, the same thing in the current NASL? No, you don't. Um, with the exception of maybe one or two trips, you know, otherwise, uh, quite a distance, Edmonton, 
but in the old league, you talked about for the Lord Strikers, the Tampa Bay Mutiny, um, the Washington Diplomats, the New York Cosmos, the Montreal Manique, uh, Toronto Blizzards, Edmonton, you know, as well. So now you're talking about seven, eight, nine cities that when we played in L.A. were four, five, six, seven hours. And sometimes at layovers, those were 10, 12-hour trips. Um, you don't see it in the NESL. If they branch out to the West Coast, which I've heard they will, uh, all of a sudden that travel becomes uh, is going to play a part in in you know I think performances and, and maybe results for certain teams. The home team clearly has a home field advantage. Talking about travel, uh, there has been talks that FC Edmonton they spend so much money on travel just because of their location uh, in the country, and it's really crazy when you sit down and really see. Uh, how much travel t- takes a part in a soccer team? Yes, it does. I mean, it's 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 a huge cost for certain teams, and then also, you know, ownership sometimes is not uh, not totally aware of that till they, at the end of the season, go, where did we lose the most money, or lose? You know, we spend most money in our players. And secondly, I would almost think it will be travel. You know, imagine if Edmonton needs to go to Puerto Rico, Edmonton needs to go to Jacksonville, Edmonton needs to go to Fort Lauderdale. Edmonton needs to go to Miami. Edmonton needs to go to Tampa. That's five teams right there. I'm sure they'll have a road team or they play a road trip where they play two of those teams. But that is a tremendous amount of uh, uh, of cost that was involved. Yeah, for sure. It's really, really crazy uh, when you look at travel in this country. So you had two stints with the Strikers uh, in your playing career. Do you have any cool stories that you would like to share with your time with the Strikers? I had some uh, great players, obviously, which I was very fortunate uh, uh, to be able to play with those players, be it Gert Mueller, be it Ray Hudson, be it Ricardo Villa, be it Nene Kubias, I played in four consecutive World Cups, uh, be it Elias Figaro from Chile, a big-time player, and the list goes on and on of, uh, of great players that, that I was able to play with. Um, Ray Hudson and Ken Fogarty, who was a center back, were, were very funny guys. And one day we uh, we had a party at uh, at Kenny's place. We walked in around nine. Uh, the first immediate uh, uh, point of interaction is the refrigerator to look for beer, and it had a big uh, at that time a large refrigerator that you see now uh, very normal and it's very common. And you open the refrigerator, and there's Ray Hudson sitting in the refrigerator, totally naked. <laughs> you know, those, are, those are things that went on on a pretty regular basis, but that's just one to mention. Ray Hudson looks like a funny, funny guy. Yeah, yeah, he is. I mean, if you show him, you see him at uh, uh, BN right now. Um, you know, he's he's one of the better pundits, I think, for the reason you know Ray is Ray. You know, <laughs> he's got a great gaff for Gip and uh, or Gip for gaff, whatever you call it. Uh, he's created words in English that uh, that we are not familiar with, which is great. Uh, the way he expresses himself, especially in uh, Barcelona matches, so it's it's fun to see that he really landed on his feet in an area where he's excelling right now. Yeah, that's for sure. So let's get talking on developing talent because as a coach, your goal is to de- develop the best talent. And what do you think has to change? for U.S. soccer to develop that Messi, to develop that best player in the world? Oh, it's it, that's a hard answer. I know that some people think we can do this in the next two years or even the next decade. I think it's very hard. A, 
we need to continue to create a, a true soccer culture. Slowly but surely, yeah, look at some, some teams. Uh, you look now the way they approach the game from a fan standpoint, and there's some you know, some new European feeling to it. Uh, be it, I mean, Indy 11 has a great fan base that is vocal, that is a little crazy, uh, like we see in Europe or South America. Um, you got the Seattle Sounders, you got Portland, obviously, are great examples of. Uh, there's a culture almost developing there that, that that makes you feel like it's becoming part of a fiber. And if we can instill that somewhere in the lower levels and have kids really wake up in the morning and wanting to play football, uh, be it in a park, be it on the street, be it in an artificial turf that's created uh, in, in the inner city, uh, in some countries or some cities, uh, that's important. We don't have that yet. So now what happens is we have to replicate in practice let's say two times a week with our real young players, three or four times a week with our older players. We have to replicate almost street and beach soccer. Um, and when I grew up, I learned my, my, my skills through playing street soccer with mm-hmm. older players, with younger players. I knew when to dribble because I, if I dribbled too far, someone would kick me. Uh, I knew how to, how to play with the inside of my foot. That would be a better ball than uh, my shoelaces because it was more accuracy when I played it to a, a teammate. I learned how to be nasty and tough because I had to fight against the big guy if I was a defender. Uh, I learned the, the, the tricks of the trade, so to speak. And then I would go to practice, even as a young player, 8, 9, 10, and I would already be taught, and that's so important because we don't have enough good soccer teachers on the lower levels, and bless their hearts, uh, their parents, or sometimes a former player that doesn't have really any uh, licensures, um, that now uses the practices as a game to explore and for the game to be the best teacher. And I'm sure you can implement something and say, hey, at least an A-licensed coach needs to coach your younger age groups, regardless if you pay him yes or no. And there's plenty of A-licensed coaches out there, I think, that that we could uh, convince, and that's up to the club, talking to a coach, talk about your philosophy, talk about that coach maybe moving up with that team and eventually getting... Uh, paid some decent money uh, because there's got to be some incentive obviously for those coaches willing to do that outside of some that just do it because um, they have very good jobs and want to give back to the game so to speak but the majority of our coaches in this country make their livelihoods of this and again at especially the academy clubs on the highest level is where those coaches get rewarded you know the best they can make a living that that or yeah can make a living that that makes sense for them. So it's a very tricky. It's a very hard. There's no real answers to that, and I don't know if you could implement that. As I said again, U.S. Soccer is the one that holds the trump cards, and just like they implemented no heading under age ten or twelve, whatever it is, twelve I think, mm-hmm. they easily could implement. There's got to be somebody at the bottom of your foundation, at the bottom of your structure, where young players come in that really can be affected. Those first four years are so crucial. If you do not get those kids sufficient enough in just the skills alone area, trapping a ball, passing a ball, playing a ball, um, even skills of, of tackling is a skill in itself. I'm not advocating that we're going to do slide tackling and things like that, but that's still a skill. We we don't teach defending. Defending has become a lost art. We throw guys pretty athletic in the back, and that's it. But 
We don't teach him when to nudge somebody forward. We don't teach him to impede forward to make a diagonal run. We don't teach him when they need to anticipate and get in front of the ball. And we don't teach him to proper. We we don't have any. Just as I said, we don't have players who can play balls over distance. I don't see too many American players, even with our athletic ability, that are good slight tacklers of the ball. That's tackling, winning the ball, getting up with the ball, and maintaining possession for your team. Yes, everybody can lose his feet and, and whack somebody, but the skill of the art of defending is obviously by doing it without giving giving up a foul. When you talked about uh, developing talent, uh, do you think the academies where you need to pay to play, do you think those should go away? Do you think we should open it up to everyone uh, who wants to play the sport? Um, the reason, and we all know, the reason we've done that is to, and I was part of the process when I still was at U.S. soccer, was trying to get the better teams in this country to compete against each other, to make games more relevant, make games tighter, uh, and not lopsided games that you play against a team that, that is 10 miles down the street, doesn't have the resources to bring in good players, or good players would actually leave to go to the perceived better clubs, and you get seven, eight, nothing games. That's worthless. So the intent was to create a league, which is called the uh, Development Developmental Academy League from U.S. Soccer, where MLS teams are part of as well, mm-hmm. and the bigger teams in in in, in specific uh, particular uh, cities, um, and let them compete in hope that outside of training, good competition will also help further develop players. Um, should it be open to everyone? I think it is, uh, but through tryouts, players fall by the wayside. Some get picked, some don't. Are we in all areas of this country? No, we're not. Are we in poor parts of the country? No, we're not. Uh, Clint Dempsey was born in Nacogdoche, Texas. Clint Dempsey didn't play a real game till he was 16 years old and traveled an hour, hour and a half to Dallas to play for the Dallas Texans. So there's still players out there that I think we, we miss in the inner city, in the Latin American community, and in communities where we just don't have any soccer outreach, uh, no scouts, uh, and things like that. So... In, in such a big country, I, I understand why, to a certain extent, we always we just can't do that. When do you see us actually getting these things done? When do you see us going into the city, uh, getting scouts out there? When do you see U.S. soccer just uh, fixing everything that, that's wrong? Well, I, I don't think it's fixed. It's not fixable, I think. Um. And I'm running out of juice on this one too, so you got to make it quick. Um, this this country is is has a lot of things going for it, and also a lot of things that are against it. It's so much easier in the Netherlands. Holland is one third of the state of Florida. Spain is almost the same size as Florida. Portugal is half of Florida. Germany is the state of Texas. So it's a lot easier for those countries and clubs to find talent anywhere. There's not one player that goes unnoticed in those countries. Combined with great coaching education in those countries, which I think we're, we're trying to do better, but we're still lacking, um, I think it's it's almost impossible to do this. So now you got to pick your poison. Um, and there's not a right or a wrong, I think, answer in regards to this. 
Um, if they had unlimited resources, there should be a scout. There should be 10 scouts in, in 20 scouts in, in Texas because that's the that's Spain. And Spain probably has 100 scouts in Spain alone, you know, with the um, federation. And then the respective clubs have four or five scouts that go out and scout for Atletico Madrid, Valencia, Bob Bilbao. So it, it's it's very very it's a very costly uh, endeavor, and and I think you'll see this process staying the same for quite some time. I see coaching education becoming a little bit better, but those coaches now that we're going to deliver, they're not going to see their bare fruits, or whatever you call that, fruits of labor, till a decade from now. So, you know, if you look at the pool of our national team right now, it might be worse than Bruce Arena's team in 202, um, Bob Bradley's team in 2010. And that's sad, actually. Mm -hmm. I also has to do with, with the influences of naturalized Americans. Let's be real honest. I think there's too many average dual citizens, in particularly Germans, on, on this team. And, and that stifles also the development of our young American players because they're just going to get an opportunity to play in, in real significant games, be it the Gold Cup, be it World Cup qualifying, be it whatever. I mean, you look at our starting 11 right now, you got Fabian Johnson, you got Bobby Wood, you got Jermaine Jones, you got, uh, you know, the, the list goes on of, of guys, uh, Brooks, um, of guys that we've found, but that play for average Bundesliga teams. They don't play for Bayern Munich. They don't play for uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach or Dortmund. Um, so that, to me, is also a little bit of a, of a problem, I think, uh, that, that we've seen since Klinsmann has come in. Saying that, who else is out there that could replace those players? And, and that's another one. I look at MLS right now. There's probably three or four players that deserve a shot. But that's probably about it. So why are, have we gone backwards? That's even a, a more shocking revelation. So we have a listener question from at ATL Gorilla Talk. He says, will you coach again? Um, yeah, I would like to. I've got still good energy. I love to coach. That's still my passion. Uh, I'm talking to a few clubs right now, both uh, in the USL, both in the NESL and in MLS. Uh, I want to make sure now that it's the right uh, club organization. And then we got obviously the uh, talking head or talent analyst uh, situation that also um, I feel I'm good at and where people have noticed me. So we'll, we'll see. Something will happen within the next month or two for Thomas Rungen. Is that Mike Grella from, uh, from the Red Bulls? Who, who, uh, who asked the question? No, no, no. Yeah, was his last name Grella or not? No, Gorilla Talk. It's a podcast about the Atlanta oh, Silverbacks. Oh, Gorilla Talk, yeah. Yes. Uh, and what is your objectives? Like, what do you want to achieve if you coach again? Um, all depends on where you're at. And, and, and objectives are different. When I was with the United States Soccer Federation for 10 years, and was the assistant coach for Steve Sampson in 98, it was all about winning. We didn't do that, unfortunately, in the, in the World Cup of France, but it was all about that's the ultimate. Nothing else cares. we got to win games. When I was uh, part of the Olympic team, 
uh, winning was also important and still probably the most important. But we also talked about preparing players for our full national team. And when I was the um, head coach of the under-20 national team, it was probably 50-50. The more players I could push through to the Olympic team and the senior team, that was really my responsibility. And yes, we wanted to win qualifying. And yes, we wanted to go as far in the under-20 World Cup as possible because it would give those players more meaningful games on the pressure situations that you can't replicate in friendlies or whatever it might be. So um, that was the goal. With a club, it's short-term making the playoffs and hoping to win a championship. Long-term, creating a culture within a club that they could sustain and be competitive each and every year. You can't win it all every year, but that you could make the playoffs and should make the playoffs every year because you laid a foundation through some younger players as well that you feel can contribute in a year or two, uh, that you could have some success uh, too. So it all depends where you're where you're at and if it would be a front office position in terms of player development. I would like to have a vested interest in the academy and development of young players. I would love to scout because I think I have a, a keen eye for talent. Uh, so they're, they're all different at the end of the day. Yeah, talent is very important, and we talked about this in this episode, how uh, scouting and uh, it's just very important for the future of U.S. soccer. Yes, it is. Um, scouting for our respective national teams, first and foremost. And again, if you, the higher you go up in the ladder, uh, the more you, you will find players that either play in the NESL, like Ira Barron or Ramirez, that hopefully gets a call up to... Uh, to the January camp, but more so MLS and, and abroad. That's where those players come from. And scouting really is, is there's nobody out there at age 25 that we don't know about. Um, with the under 20 team, just to give you some examples, nobody knew about mixed disc route, which I found. Nobody more knew about Bobby Wood, which I found when he was 16, playing for 1860 Munich. Nobody knew about, I'll be real honest with you, Clint Dempsey, that I found in a college game one day when Furman played a team where I was scouting, actually, another player, Chad Marshall, Stanford, I think. And I went like, whoa, who's this guy? Hmm. Next year, he's in, in, in playing in the in the World Cup, on a 20 World Cup in the UAE, 203. And he goes from there, based on his performances, he goes into a Generation Adidas and, and plays for New England and goes to England. That's all they wrote. So on that level, I think there's still players out there you can find that our establishment have have not done. Uh, so that was an example with DMC here, was an example of Mixed Groot in Nor in Norway, and was an example of Bobby Wood in, in Germany, where sometimes young players through coaches that have contacts end up at clubs at 15 or 16 that we don't know about. So there's still those players, I think, that we could, uh, uh, could entice because the most of them have dual citizenship that we can entice to stay with uh, um, with the United States and, and represent this country. Let's just change gears for one last time. This is the last topic that we're going to talk about, and it's the hottest issue in the United States. A lot of you people talk about it, and that's ProRail. I want to get your stance on it. Uh, what are your thoughts with ProRail in this country? Um, from a romantic, idealistic standpoint, I would love to see it. But from a real, realistic business perspective, it's never going to happen. Now, 
looking at the pyramid, looking at MLS, looking at NASL right now, Division Two, looking at USL, Division Three, look at PDL, look at there's I think five layers um, of soccer, semi-professional soccer, and the PDL I guess is still amateur um, out there that 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 they need to find a niche. I think between the USL and NASL, but they will never come to an agreement because there was a hostile breakaway. Mm -hmm. I think it would be very healthy, uh, would stimulate the game, but nobody from the NASL will ever get into the MLS. I don't care how many championships they win. It's just not, it's just not going to happen. It doesn't fit the business plan. It doesn't fit single entity. Uh, and quite frankly, I agree with that. It, it just is not going to happen. Um, and as I said again, deep in my heart, I would love to see it because I come from a, uh, a soccer culture abroad that that happens all the time, and and I understand the beauty of that. Um, a third division team can work work its way all the way up to, you know, uh, the the EPL like Bournemouth or or in Spain we've got some examples, but it's not it's not sustainable here. There's nobody with the exception of two or three underneath MLS that have the financial capabilities to hang with those guys. Um, so that's a tough position to be in because I'm sure that a lot of owners went into this proposition uh, thinking they were going up and only a select few are going to Minnesota, maybe Sacramento. And going forward, in my opinion, that's about it. Or somebody's going to come up with an incredible stadium plan in the NESL and a hundred million dollars or more even to get in. And I don't think there's anybody who's willing to do that. And that's the truth of U.S. soccer. Uh, hopefully it does happen, but again, being realistic, who really knows? So thanks again, Thomas Rogan, for coming on, and hopefully we can have you on real soon. No problem. I enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks again to Thomas Rogan for coming on the show. I know he's very busy. Check out our new website, firstteampod.com. You can stay up to date on all the latest New York Cosmos news with our blog, and we have so many features on there. We have our blog, our email list, our YouTube channel. So it, it's a hub for all Cosmos supporters. So check out firstteampod.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at OneTeamPod because we have a lot of great things happening in the next couple of weeks. So follow us there, and I'll see you guys real soon. Yeah, just want to give a shout out to the five points. The Borough Boys of Benadel Cosmos and the Cross Island yeah. crew. Uh, yeah, it's New York Street and White. What we bleed, you see and fight. Indeed, it seems to be achieving. See, we do and did it right. Cosmo Country loving, we above them. I'm just saying. All those lovely songs come and see it and I'm playing. The fact of it is the rap from Tay Attacks, Hash and Bliss. Reacts, tap, and we win. So fast, racking them in. Whether it's stacking the wing, holding back to the to the mid, cutting the seams. It seems we see anything to be. We got a ball and a dream. Got a ball and a dream. We do. I'm new, it's true. Fancy girl down for you, no doubt they do. Surrounding you about the views. Like shouting cues allowed to you without them dudes. Around my crews, I'll check the no excuse. Each session a lesson, it's not about perfection. The work's the test and F's connected like a method. Not breathless after training, something's gotta be corrected. Progression and acceleration at the start's most suggested. Infected with greatness, potential is spacious. Out the world, just face it. The work becomes contagious. Some may say we made it, but now we've just begun. Sorry if you hate it, because I can tell you that I'm